You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Mason Pasha. The Getting Smart team recently hosted a town hall event called Ask Away, a Getting Smart AMA. For those who don't know, an AMA is an Ask Me Anything, where the audience can ask any kind of question that might be on their mind, whether it be about systems change, leadership, curriculum development, and our team does their best to answer. We continue to reference a poem by Wyslava Zimborska throughout the event, where she apologizes to the big questions for small answers, and we thought that was adequate given how complex many of these issues are. Anyway, we recorded the event, and we really hope you enjoy it. Be sure to register for our future town halls. We'll be sure to put a link for registration in the show notes. All right, let's listen in. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm Mason, Getting Smart Team. A couple of my colleagues are on here as well. Uh, Tom Vanderark, Nate McLennan, and Jessica Slusser. Um, and we are super excited to see you for our first Ask Me Anything or AMA. Um, Tom, do you want to kick us off with just some quick thoughts on... Oh, I... Just a, a quick opening um, acknowledgement and a word of thanks to everybody that's on the call. Um, so many of you are educators or education leaders. Uh, maybe you're a parent or a grandparent and just wanted to acknowledge and thank you for um, your leadership and persistence uh, over the last two years. Just want to acknowledge how unbelievably difficult this has been uh, and how long it's gone on. And as we begin um, visiting schools again for the first time in a couple of years, it just has been a, a real reminder of the daily challenges of, um, of being a teacher leader. It's hard enough as it is, but then with the health concerns and layered on top of that, the, the political um, BS that that many of you are dealing with. We just wanted to acknowledge that context and, and say a word of thanks. Mason, um, I'm gonna kick us off. I think Cherry, um, yeah. um, Cherry Roquefort um, sent us some really difficult, interesting, um, challenging questions. Hey, Cherry, I see you there. I'd love to, you asked a question about Culture change and uh, getting folks to work together in teams. You want to give us a little backstory on those questions? They're really great. Um, yeah, I actually own my own business where I reach out to schools and work with um, teachers to create more teacher-friendly environments in the schools. So it's sort of come from um, reaching out to organizations like Agency who are in um, the UX design Another one, uh, science, who are uh, working with leadership in the schools. And a lot of what we've been looking at is in creating change in a lot of these schools. Um, it doesn't seem like all the players have been involved in yeah. cult, you know, the culture shift. And a lot of times because of that, it's not sustained for time. And I came out of working as a project manager for a large school system, and I worked in innovation projects specifically. So, um, and I also work with Catalyst ED. Um, so a lot of the people that I'm talking to and working with are finding the same things where the teachers are not being involved in decision-making or um, what's being designed for them 
you know, it's being done to them rather than, you know, with them. Right. <laughs> so that's sort of where questions came from. It's just a concern that the sustainability of change and innovation because the, all the players are not at the table. Love that. Um, Sherry, here's here's what, I, uh, what I'd like to do. I want to start with the subject of culture change. I'm frozen, it's, sorry. <laughs> it's so fundamental. And then I want to talk um, I want to talk a little bit about the second part of your question is getting people to work together productively. Um, and then we're going to jump to a larger question, a uh, related question from our friend Matt Piercy about um, mobilizing school change in, um, in, in existing schools. But the, your culture question is a super great um, place to start. Um, but before um, Nate weighs in on um, on getting getting to a common why, um, I want to tell you a funny story from my uh, first year as a superintendent. Um, I, I moved a really gifted young principal uh, to a struggling school, a struggling high poverty school, and I I remember coming to visit him uh, the day before school started and uh, saw something I didn't expect. He was out at the front sidewalk planting flowers. And I said, what the heck are you doing? Uh, and he said, Tom, I'm, uh, I'm setting the stage uh, to make sure that every learner and every parent that walks into the school um, feels welcomed and valued. Uh, we walked into the lobby and I noticed that he and his wife had uh, over the weekend before painted and put um, a rocking chair uh, near the front door. And that taught me an important lesson that culture really does start with um, the, the little things, with the uh, environment and with a, a servant leader um, creating a tone uh, that everybody is welcome, that everybody is included, um, and that uh, appearances and environments uh, matter to, to set the stage. So uh, just for me, that story has stuck with me that paying attention to the little things, um, planting flowers and modeling the way um, is, is for me a, a place that uh, a strong culture starts. Um, Nate, t tell us about your experiences in getting folks to a common why and how that sets the stage for a positive culture? Yeah, I think, Sherry, I mean, I, I, I imagine you have seen this over and over again, but the, but the ping-ponging of agendas at, in schools and organizations is significant. So, so I think um, those impacted feel that and, and predict that when a new leader comes in, when a new board comes in, uh, et cetera, et cetera, with the next agenda, the change agent type person. So I think my experience suggests that uh, really starting early with the common why, saying like, why would we do this? And not only bringing in teachers like you alluded to, but also the, the, the other learners, the students um, in the process and understand what is the common goal that we're all reaching to. Um, we've done a lot of work with, with understanding the why and then building common outcomes. So what do we wanna see in the young people when they graduate, a uh, portrait of a graduate or learner profile? which then spins into how we'll do that. So what does that look like in terms of a set of learning principles? So once those things are in place, 
it, it feels like uh, that has been more successful for me than when I just say, oh, I've got a great idea when I was a principal and I had a great idea and I laid it out there and said, who's on board? Um, the, the, the second thing I would say, which again, is probably familiar to most of you is really understanding Roger's innovation curve, which although it's old, it's it's still good. And, and I've actually taken groups of, of faculty and had them physically place themselves. Um, I, don't, I don't use the laggard term as the last part of the innovation curve because it seems derogatory, but, but really try to understand that there's only going to be a few people that are right in front adopting the innovation. And then you have your early adopters and then your, your late adopters and your followers, et cetera. And that has held true for most organizations that I've worked with. And we have to work with all those constituents at once after we get to a common why, common set of outcomes and a common agreement around the principles. So that's, that's my, my, my thoughts on that. I want to um, follow up on this idea of, of um, community conversations that create governing ideas that guide culture and, and just give, give you another story about um, fixing problems uh, that I, I think a, a leader can't just um, describe what a positive culture looks like. Um, they, they do actually have to remove barriers. And I, I remember in my also in my uh, first year as a superintendent, uh, one of our uh, middle school principals was just mean to parents and uh, to his fellow educators in every meeting that I was involved in. And I pulled him aside one day and I said, we don't treat people that way here. Um, and he did it again at the next uh, meeting that we had. And I said, uh, like we've discussed, we don't treat people that way. We treat everybody with dignity and respect here. Um, and he did it a third time. And I said, you're fired. You don't work here anymore. And he said, well, you can't do that. And I said, no, I just did. Uh, it was not a very good HR process. Um, it cost my district some money, but it was a terribly important culture step uh, to indicate to everybody in our community that we valued um, decency, respect, uh, the dignity of every person. Uh, and it's up to leaders, um, not only to describe the desired culture, but um, to, to really make sure that the, the barriers to a, a desired culture um, are out of the way. Um, let, let's quickly take on the, the rest of Sherry's question, Nate, um, she talked about getting people to work together in teams. And this is such a, an interesting question because it's a mixture not only of, of culture, but I think structure. Um, I'm going to say a little bit about uh, structure. Um, I believe the pandemic was a signal that it, it, for education, which for 100 years has been the work of individual practitioners, at least in many schools, um, it, I think it signaled that we now really have to work in teams, uh, particularly when we're thrown into difficult circumstances. Um, to do that, it's really important that leaders um, create coherence, that they um, help people understand, uh, as Nate said, what the common why is, what, the, uh, what you're trying to accomplish, and then really to structure the work uh, and the staffing around teams. And that's new for 
many of us, but to make clear that we work in teams um, in schools and the teams that support schools um, and to distribute leadership to, uh, to those teams so that there's clear team leadership at every uh, grade span and in every uh, departmental area. Uh, Nate and I are really excited to see this happening around the country. Um, our friends at uh, opportunityculture.org, uh, this is a public impact project, but uh, opportunity uh, opportunityculture.org is a great example of a team-based staffing structure that leverages the most experienced uh, team leaders and provides more support for new team members. Um, Nate and I are also working with ASU Prep uh, and ASU um, Fulton Teachers College is, has a next workforce initiative that is based on teams. Uh, and so Sherry, my answer is to organize work in teams and, uh, and take seriously the, the work of uh, supporting teams. Nate, what do you wanna add to that about uh, getting people to work together in teams effectively? Right, and uh, just to add, build on the ASU, Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College is one of the things they're thinking about is breaking down the silos of traditional silos, whether it's grade division or uh, discipline division and saying, what are the skill sets of those individual teachers? So maybe you have an expert in project-based learning or an expert in personalized learning and you get those experts or those teams together rather than the more traditional teams. Uh, so skills-based teams, I think is important. I think from a, from a bigger uh, perspective on teaming, um, one of the things that I'm always interested in is, is common set of norms. Most schools and organizations have a set of values. Many have not unpacked those values, meaning they create them, they put them on their website, then they're forgotten. Uh, I, I believe it's really important to unpack values for any new team to say, here's the common values, but what does that mean for us to review and reflect uh, during meetings around those uh, and then come up with some continued shared language so that we're all speaking uh, with the same vocabulary uh, and have the same understanding of, of whether it's common vision, common mission, et cetera. Uh, Jess, I'd love to have you add, uh, oh, I, I've got it, uh, a podcast from Rhoda uh, Mary Peary Reed. Uh, terrific um, Minnesota uh, superintendent and a terrific example of early in her superintendency of leading community conversation that resulted in guiding principles on shared values. Um, check out the, the podcast notes that I just uh, shared. Beautifully articulated shared values, uh, design principles for uh, innovation and sort of a description of what uh, learning should look like in, in her district. So a great example of someone who uh, I think led a process that articulated um, the desired culture. Um, and she's also won an award from uh, the, the Education PR Association because she and her team do such a terrific job of sharing um, sharing our thoughts on a weekly basis uh, with schools and, and community uh, around those shared values. Wonder if anybody else on the call wants to comment on this topic of, of creating a powerful culture and uh, productive teams. 
I just wanted to piggyback on that question just to say yes. that there's so much um, turnover in the school system with teachers that I think a yeah. lot issue uh, with the common set of norms and values um, is improper onboarding of new staff and teachers. Yes. Um, I think that the culture shift starts before they ever start their first day. And I think that a lot of it needs to happen before they set foot in their classroom. When they've been hired, I think it needs to be backed up to, you know, let's let's set the stage for, you know, who we are and what our culture and our value is so that the people coming in already have an orientation. Yeah. Is, and not just sort of learning it on the fly and sort of learning one perspective from one teacher and another perspective from another, um, because then it waters down the essence of what you're trying to do there. Um, so just a thought that, you know, I see a lot of it is, um, you know, not proper onboarding of not just teachers, but, you know, anyone that's going to be a part of the culture change coming in new. Tom, I, um, I would just add on to that, Sherry, one of the things, so we work with a university charter school down in Alabama, about two hours southwest of Birmingham. And one of, one of the things that we've worked on with them that they've, they've implemented well is a set of clear and coherent professional learning outcomes. And they, they, front fa- they try to front face that in the hiring process so that, so that when people are uh, applying, they're seeing what the expectations are, what the outcomes are. And I think that's been really helpful, not only for existing teachers, but also like you're articulating for new teachers coming in. So how we front face that through our HR departments and hiring, recognizing that some schools have trouble attracting even one teacher to apply. So I'm, I'm putting that out there as a challenge, I know. But yeah. how do we articulate culture and, and norms prior to people actually even coming in the door for an interview? Uh, I love that. And then, Kevin, thank you for the, the great reminder that um, the culture is something that we have to actively recreate. Um, I, I remember... Um, my first visit to, to mission schools and Deb Meyer talking about um, recreating that culture around the faculty table um, on a on a weekly basis, and uh, I think your your reminder that with so much new happening, as Sherry said, um, man, we have to make this job one of of actively um, recreating the culture. Um, uh, the, the other thing, Sherry, I would say is your your comment about the, Onboarding is also why um, Nate and I feel so strongly about teams that um, teams can create a, a bit of a sheltered environment, particularly for um, teachers new to the profession and new to a school um, and make sure that that onboarding is really uh, highly personal and, and extended uh, in, in nature. Um, I saw Brett Rohr was on the call. Brett had a lot of experience with um, creating a positive culture in Brooklyn. Uh, hey, Brett, you want to talk about either uh, trying to get culture right or get teams to work together? Absolutely. It was definitely uh, the most important and most challenging aspect yeah, of right? the role, uh, especially in the Bronx, where I was most recently a principal at Bronx Campus High School. Um, you know, when I left there, I was really really proud of the fact that on my last survey when teachers get to you know uh say what they thought of the culture of the school and the and the way the administration led they said 100 percent of them felt respected by the principal felt we had communicated a clear vision and felt that our administrative team worked cohesively and gave uh timely feedback and i felt like that's about as good as it's going to get and um 
we really prided ourselves on no feedback from staff was too small or students or families. And that we would always try to really, uh, as an administrative team, really be thoughtful about where is that feedback coming from and why is it relevant that someone would feel the need to express it? Is it coming from frustration? Is it coming from fear? Um, obviously the same with positive feedback, but we definitely took to heart more the constructive feedback and students can be very, uh, can be very free in their constructive feedback. So that was always incredibly important to us, but taking that feedback and doing something with it, I think really made, yeah. uh, made the staff and students feel like we valued their opinions because we truly did. And we knew this was their school. And if they didn't feel like they had an avenue uh, as active stakeholders, then what are we, what are we really doing with this and how, how valuable are we really making them feel as part of a community? I love that. Uh, creating openness Thank and you. transparency where people feel like uh, they have a voice. Uh, Brett, you, aren't you uh, working with outliers now? Yeah, I'm currently at outlier.org so, doing their high school strategic partnerships. Yes. Yeah. So the interesting thing, Nate, Nate and I have a piece coming up on the unbundling of education and how there's this positive explosion of learning opportunities for kids, including um, sites like Outlier that create some really, really great part-time learning experiences for high school kids. I think the fact that more kids are, are going to able to bundle their education from multiple sources means that the core culture of the school uh, is even more important because some of these unbundling things can pull us apart. And so uh, I think it's just, uh, while we love the options that you're creating at Outlier, that while we take advantage of those, we really do have to pay even more attention to our core culture. You, do you buy that? Oh, absolutely. Just in speaking with school leaders across the country, that's been uh, definitely one of the most salient points that have been resonating with me is that the pandemic definitely taught, right? Your strengths as a community were either, were really exposed during the pandemic for better or worse. And communication and being able to mobilize your students and families to rally around a new learning platform such as Outlier or other initiatives is so important. And so far we've seen the, the learning communities that are able to mobilize their students, get key information to them, and more importantly, be able to double back and check in with them to yeah. ensure that things are working on new initiatives has been the most uh, instrumental facet of new partnership student success from like day one. Great. So very thanks valuable for, and meaningful. Of course. Thanks uh, for being with us and, uh, and best in your, this new chapter of your leadership journey. I, I much I wanna, appreciate Thank you. I want to turn to Matt Piercy, our friend in uh, Bangkok. Matt is a, a columnist um, for us and he's a teacher at the international school of uh, Bangkok. And um, Matt asked this uh, a beautiful question about how do you get a, a big school to move? And it, it might be a school that has kind of a storied tradition. Um, how do you um, how do you mobilize change in that sort of a, an environment where uh, there's a lot of sunk cost of, of history and, uh, and tradition? So thanks for that, Matt. I don't think you're on because it's probably the middle of the night there. Um, but Nate and I have a, a couple of things that we want to mention. We're going to do a couple of international examples and some, some U.S. examples. The, the first one is uh, a great story um, from the Singapore American School. Uh, Matt, you probably know SAS, but uh, our friend Chip Kimball and Tim Stewart um, spent seven years 
uh, helping transform SAS from the best test uh, taking school, the best AP school in the world uh, to a real beacon for uh, active learning. And, and I think my, my lessons learned, uh, we outlined these in a case study uh, that we published. Um, we updated a second case study and published it um, a year ago, was to go fast or go slow to go fast. Um, Chip did something really extraordinary when he, when he joined SAS and he invited 100 of the faculty members, 100 of the 400, uh, to go visit the 100 best schools in the world. And so it's just a giant lift your chin uh, exercise of spending 18 months of helping the faculty um, explore the world and understand um, that there are schools that are excellent um, at academics and excellent in the sense of possibility and excellent uh, in pastoral care and support uh, for learners, but very few schools that are good at all of those things. Uh, so it just, it lifted their aspiration for what's possible by um, exploring the world. Chip also did a terrific job of distributing leadership. Uh, a couple of years into his work, he had 150 teachers in leadership roles um, at that school. I had the chance to meet a couple of times with that leadership group, and it was really a powerful, uh, very well-informed force because they had spent so much time studying the, the best schools in the world. Um, I'll quickly mention a domestic example. Kettle Moraine is a, a suburban district west of Milwaukee where our friend Pat DeClotz uh, launched a high school transformation effort by actually starting micro schools inside a, a comprehensive high school. And we'll post a link to a podcast with, uh, with Pat where she details the strategy. Uh, Pat, you, uh, Pat points to a bunch of the same lessons as Chip, uh, distribute leadership. Uh, as Sherry talked uh, about creating a culture of sort of all hands on deck, um, having teachers experience personalized learning themselves, which I think is super important. Um, starting small, uh, many of these micro schools that uh, she started were two teachers and 40 kids. So starting very small and then allowing uh, those to grow as they as more teachers, parents, and, and students became interested in them. Um, and she, too, said, going faster is not always better. Make haste slowly. Uh, it's funny, she started schools quickly, but she let them grow at their, at their own speed. And then uh, finally, she said, uh, remember that the community is always evolving. You need to constantly be communicating your why. So this goes back to Nate's uh, creating, creating a, a common why. Nate, any other thoughts on uh, getting a, a big school to move? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll just add a few thoughts and then love to prompt Emily to, to articulate her question that was in chat because it's super relevant about our communication. Um, I think one of the things that has been really effective uh, in the areas that I've worked in schools and orgs is building R&D uh, or, or innovation teams within the system. I think uh, the for-profit sector companies do this really, really well, and schools don't do this well for all sorts of reasons. So the, my last organization, we actually had a funded and insular uh, R&D group that I was uh, leading that, that um, was raising funds or taking funds from the budget. It was a funded piece to actually test innovation, test ideas from teachers, test ideas uh, from students, 
and then work them to either, hey, let's roll them into the larger program or let's uh, put them on the shelf. So I think just encouraging R&D in any system, no matter how big or small. And then the second thing I would ask, uh, I would say is, uh, is uh, what many of you probably have experienced is do the empathy walks, uh, follow a student for a whole day and, and really understand what it's like to be a student right now. Cause it's a very different experience than what most of us adults are planning and designing around in my opinion. So um, Emily, Emily, love to hear your, just phrase your question if you can. Um, Emily is one of our friends from uh, Kansas city. Awesome. Terrific suburban school district. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. Thanks for hey, letting Emily. me join in. Um, I guess one of the things we were actually just talking about this today. So I'm in the process of doing curriculum writing for elementary and secondary social studies. And we have so many good ideas, so many innovative things that Tom and the Getting Smart team has been part of with the uh, Kaufman Initiative for Real World Learning. And we're trying to get together and have conversations where we can have innovative thinking and collaborative conversations and all of these things about culture changing and common wise. We can't get past the fact that substitutes are just not available. And so you said, you know, some districts can't even um, get people to apply for certain jobs. And and that's not a a problem that we have in my district, um, fortunately. But unfortunately, a lot of the work that we would love to be moving forward on has completely stopped just simply Mm. because of the circumstances. And we have, you know, community issues and then we have high school relationship kid issues. And then we have, you know, just normal stuff that is simply just exacerbated given the circumstances. And so um, it seems like email overload is a reality. So sending an email isn't very effective anymore. And people just, social media is just, people are stretched. Getting on social media is just not really a good thing. So what are ways that we can communicate that things are changing, things are moving forward, it is progressing, um, that is a, is a, is working because it seems like it's very inconsistent, the messages that people are getting and, um, and about the progress and what's really happening. What are you guys doing? This is, I'm going to go back to Zimborska and just apologize for a, an incomplete answer to, uh, to a complicated question. Um, thanks, Emily. I, I want to note that you and your colleagues have, have been regional leaders at, um, at uh, client-connected projects and internships and entrepreneurial experiences. So Emily has built these really cool relationships in her community and helped other districts create cool relationships. So um, Emily, I know one one of the strategies that you're dealing with is uh, try to connect kids with community organizations, including museums and NGOs, uh, that can be a learning partner um, giving kids more responsibility to uh, to craft projects, um, to work closely with partners both in and out of school um, in new and, and challenging ways. So that may be a, a small part of the answer is just try to uh, rely more heavily on community partners when you're having a challenge getting uh, your own uh, team staffed. Uh, you may have to call Brent and uh, use an outlier course. Uh, so it is requiring a new level of flexibility for all of us when um, you don't have subs and you're doing contact tracing at night, right? So some of it is patience and grace. Uh, some of it is flexibility. Some of it is entrepreneurial mindset. Nate, what 
My only sort of out of the box idea that um, we've tried uh, with, I guess, medium success in a prior school was uh, building a team of learners that are the marketing and communications team. So when, when schools are stretched like they are now, how do we create learning experiences for students that help support the school Uh, document documenting in ways that make sense for the students, Um, you know, using a TikTok or using whatever it is, and then uh, pushing out to parents as well in interesting ways. So I think that um, that was helpful. So for every project that we had, so say it was a real world learning experience in Kansas city, there was always a documentation team. Uh, that was articulated with any project. So, so for us, I mean, that was in our, our situation. So you could do that in your situation where you, you always were assigning and you're rotating students around. So they all have the, the opportunity to do the documentation um, of the experience. So just one thing to think about. So uh, Emily, I, I'll, I'm going to make an observation that, um, uh, that, that uh, double blocks um, may be part of the solution um, we're a big fan of the uh, the New Tech Network, which is um, team-taught, double-block, project-based learning wall-to-wall, and now uh, K-12 in many, many cases, um, uh, shifting even temporarily to a double-block structure where you have a, a, a sub and an experienced teacher um, working together or around community-connected projects m- might be an option, but a super challenging one, I'll, I'll acknowledge that. Um, I also wanna acknowledge, Emily, that um, Missouri has some well-intentioned but uh, constructive end of course uh, exams that, uh, that people still think about that reduce your flexibility, m- m- may inhibit people from taking on, uh, you know, double block project-based learning because they're they're aiming at, a, at an end of course test, so. Um, Let's just acknowledge that it's a challenging circumstance and uh, you do the best you can. Thank you very much. Those are some great ideas. Um, I hadn't thought about a, a team taught double block, but that's definitely something. And I love the idea of bringing kids into part of that process yeah, with documentation Emily, teams. As, as uh, we've talked about with our, uh, our great uh, partner and friend, Fernanda Rain, from um, Got History, um, just leaning on some of our community partners, um, taking advantage of the fact that school districts have more flexibility than they typically use for granting credit for out of school and community connected learning um, might be something that we uh, try to take advantage of uh, this year. But uh, thanks for reminding us how how challenging it is. Uh, people can't get subs. They can't find bus drivers. Um, so it's uh, it's tough everywhere. Um, thanks for adding those uh, podcasts in the chat. Um, I want to jump to a question from John Brooks. I don't know if John's uh, on the line with us. John's a an architect that has a, a great question about design and design thinking um, that would be fun to take on. Um, John said, how can design professionals join and contribute to the conversation? Sherry, I, I wanna uh, highlight one of your questions too. Um, how can we change UX design um, in school change? So 
We'll make a couple comments about um, design, both environments and experiences, um, and how we can incorporate those into the school change effort. Um, first of all, Nate, do you have a copy of that uh, great new book, uh, Creative X for Curious People? Yeah, right. So uh, you won't be able to see it very good on the screen, um, but it is because uh, it'll be blurry. Um, but um, Creative X for yeah. Curious People, great new book from the Stanford D School. Uh, the author, uh, Sarah Stein Greenberg, was on our podcast last week. Listen to that. It's a it's really a beautiful uh, discussion. And Sarah's uh, new book is something that all of you should get. It's just a terrific tool kit for uh, people involved in school change. You can read it frontwards or backwards or 10 minutes at a time. You'll find some really cool tips for using uh, design in, in your practice. Second thing I'll mention is just uh, design thinking uh, can be super helpful in addressing problems at your school, in designing new schools and, and learning environments. And number three, uh, as Mason and I were discussing this morning, it's something that ought to be part of the curriculum for young people so that they learn it not later than middle school uh, and are invited to apply design thinking or computational thinking, not just in STEM, but across the curriculum uh, as they address problems. Design thinking is particularly great for ad adaptive problems, problems that we haven't seen before, problems that don't have a simple answer. Uh, problems that are impacting a community in a in a new and different way. Uh, some of uh, of our favorite schools really put design thinking at the heart of both the environment and the experience. They include One Stone, uh, Design Tech High in Redwood City, California, Design Thirty Nine, uh, my favorite K eight school that's in uh, the Poway School District in North San Diego County. Um, when you visit those schools, you'll see that design thinking was used not only in creating the environment, but uh, it's part of the learning progression and part of the personal toolkit that every young people, every young person learns. Um, our friends at One Stone have a design thinking um, guidance program called Living in Beta. Uh, Nate wrote a great um, couple of blogs on that Living in Beta program where young people use design thinking in ninth grade really to create a sense of purpose for their own learning and then uh, guide uh, their, their high school journey. Uh, Nate, other thoughts on uh, how design professionals can get involved in schools or how design thinking can be used? Yeah, a couple things on design thinking. So so where I previously worked at Teton Science Schools, part of one of the, one of the learning principles is design thinking. So it's core to, to what we did. So every student is learning that process and approach. And, and one of the things that we uh, incorporated over the last couple of years, or they incorporated over the last couple of years, was this liberatory design work um, coming out of D-School and some other partners to really think about equity in the design process. So obviously design has empathy at the start, but what liberatory design introduces is this, this idea of uh, starting with your own, noticing your own biases, because uh, we all have them and understand how those impact the design process, uh, reflecting along the way, and making sure that we're constantly reflecting and saying, who's in the room, who's not in the room, who should be leading uh, that's not here, so that we're elevating this question around equity and who designs for who and who is the design for. 
The other thing that I would say that I think is important is that we often in design thinking talk about solving problems, but I also like to reframe that as opportunity so that 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 it's not always about problems, it's about uh, accelerating opportunities that are out there that are already underway. And I think design thinking can be an effective tool for that as well. So those are some additions uh, that I might add. All right. I, I uh, actually had a great conversation last week with a sophomore from New York, uh, attends Horace Mann School there named Luke Harris. Um, and he's been putting together his own design curriculum for students because he was learning engineering and just like didn't think they were teaching it in a way that actually assessed a problem before they sought to find it. Um, and it was a great conversation. Uh, I'll be putting it out as a podcast here in the next month. But he, I asked him about impact and I was talking about like, how do you measure sort of positive and negative impacts of a design process? Um, and he, I love the way he described it. He was talking about using a pencil to write on paper in that process. And if you broke it down to the smallest possible elements of what you were doing, then you could just better assess impact. So he's looking at the graphite and the pencil and the paper. And then he's thinking about how those things are sourced. And then he's wondering, is this problem actually going to be solved by creating a bunch of paper and a bunch of pencils? Um, and I thought that was just a really novel way of thinking about it, of breaking things down to their smallest bits to better assess for impact equity. Um, and I just loved it. So keep an eye out for Luke, but I found another conversation he had with someone. Um, I'll drop it in the chat. So I want to talk about uh, these Pathfinder spaces a little bit. Our friends at uh, Fielding International, um, Randy and his team, a great international architecture firm, um, has this uh, Pathfinder strategy that they help Singapore American School pilot. Um, Pathfinder spaces are really creating uh, very small uh, versions of the future. In this big 4,000 student school, they created six um, double, triple, quadruple classrooms uh, where you would create the future learning environment, future learning furniture, um, and future learning experiences and it would allow teacher teams and the surrounding community to both interrogate and investigate the future, illustrate, interrogate, investigate the, the, the future. So it's like teachers could teleport to the future and test it out. And then fishbowl style, the rest of the community could really watch them experiencing the future. Uh, and after um, they started getting comfortable with those Pathfinder spaces, the Singapore American team began inviting the community to come in and see what the future at SAS uh, looked like. And, and it uh, pretty quickly sold the community on the need for a new facility that would look like those new spaces instead of the old spaces. Uh, the Hopkins School District where um, Rhoda Mary Perry Reed is superintendent um, has, is using that same strategy to begin building support for both new learning environments and new learning experiences. So great examples of design, of, uh, of uh, illustrating the future in a very small scale and then building support uh, for that. We dropped some links uh, into chat if you're interested in learning more. Fielding also just released a, a great um, new resource on design patterns. They have about 70 design patterns that I think are really thought-provoking both uh, for space and experience. So take a look at that. Um, and I think DLR uh, 
uh, where our friend Scott Pasha is, uh, works is also used a lot of these same uh, design strategies. Yeah, uh, we would love to open the floor for any other questions. Um, if you didn't get it in chat, feel free to just say it or drop one in chat. I had a very quick question on the last question. Um, it came out on the email, I think, about, you know, how these progressive schools are moving forward with all these innovations. And then you've got all of these schools that have, you know, been doing things a certain way for a long time. Um, and a lot of those schools are the schools that I walk into. Yeah. Um, so just getting people to prep people to prepare for change. Um, what is the easiest way to do that for a very traditional school that sort of run the same way, may have even had the same principal for many, many years and um, a lot of the same staff? Um, any ideas on sort of laying the groundwork for people being open to sustained change? Tom, I can tackle that one first if you want. Uh, so one of the things that I do, um, which is a, a fun experience with any type of school, whether they're in the, the furthest stages of their innovation journey or they're just beginning, is uh, I start with um, a brainstorm with the group of constituents, students, parents, teachers, et cetera, and ask them to describe the challenges of the future broadly. Like, what could that be? Climate change or equity or whatever the issue is or the challenge is, and that 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 articulates sort of a common understanding of what the future might look like, which is typically uncertain and super complex. Um, and then I talk about what are the knowledge, skills, and dispositions that a student might need to then address those particular challenges, uh, which gets into obviously like what a school should be teaching and, um, and, and creating a pedagogy around. And, and then I ask them to write uh, what would a day in the life of a learner be if they were to learn these things really, really well. So that, that simple three-step process takes anything away from the word innovation or change. It, it actually just puts it back on the group to say, what's the world we're living in? And what are the, what, what are the learning environments that are needed to give them the skills, dispositions, and knowledge to address that future uh, world that's complex, more mutual, more uncertain? Meet the... The addition that I want to underscore, we've talked a couple times today about uh, personalized learning for teachers. If, if we want teachers to create learning experience for young people that are big, complex, open-ended, um, and personalized in, in, in terms of task and journey, they need to experience that um, themselves. And many teachers have never had a, a system that provided that kind of rich uh, learning support. Um, we are big fans of teacher micro-credential systems that um, give teachers voice and choice in terms of what they learn, how they learn it, and how they demonstrate it. That doesn't mean it has to be a free-for-all. A school can come to a decision about some things that are a priority, but it gives teachers uh, the ability to step into their own learning journey and have uh, some agency about it. We've talked about the importance of school visits. We think those are terrifically important. And uh, later today, I'm talking to Dr. Sherry Kamhai 
of the Baldwin uh, School District in uh, Long Island. They've created a teacher externship. Uh, it's like big pictures leaving to learn, but for teachers, where teachers have an opportunity with a partial release uh, to spend time at other schools, but also visiting business and uh, civic institutions in an immersive way and really beginning to understand what the, the future of work, future of civic life looks like. So personalized learning for teachers, taking that really um, seriously so that they can become design partners in in learning journeys for uh, for students. And we'll just echo uh, Zimborska's uh, apology for uh, small answers to big questions. Thank you. Uh, live in the question. Um, keep coming back. We love to uh, continue to learn with each of you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.